If you're visiting with us tonight, welcome. Here at Calvary Chapel, one of our distinctives is that we study God's Word chapter and verse. We begin in the beginning, as it were. And so tonight, literally the beginning, all that we know about the beginning is found in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. So if you want to turn there, you can. You don't really need to, because in the beginning, God. Amen? That's as far as we're getting tonight, so. And we're actually not going to cover all of that, just so you know. You see, like with all disciplines of science, and remember that the queen of the sciences for hundreds of years was theology, the study, in essence, and the science of knowing God. And so if you were to have gone originally to Harvard, for instance, you would have had to have studied the ancient Near Eastern languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You would have been getting a degree that would have been uh, likely at least have some basis in theology because the founders of our nation and the founders of most colleges in the world up to that time would have not even questioned that in the beginning, God. And so tonight as we begin in the book of beginnings, Genesis means beginnings or origin. It's the Hebrew word bereshet. And if you look at that word, it really, we, from it we derive uh, our word cosmology or cosmogony, either one of those two things. Cosmology being the study of the universe itself, cosmogony, the study of origins. In other words, how we got everything, because you really can't study cosmology unless you start someplace. Because if anyone thinks that in the beginning nothing became something without something from outside working on it, then you don't understand the elementary principles of physics. And so we're going to be looking at some disciplines of science over the next several weeks. Uh, I want you guys to be armed because one of the areas that our faith is attacked is that our faith is ignorant. That we have to take our brains, put them in a can, and put them on the shelf in order to be Christians. And while I'll try to stay out of the deeper recesses of science just to keep everybody somewhat engaged and so I don't lose anyone... I have no intention of doing less than justice to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. So we're going to be here for a while. And I want you to get a love for the book of Genesis because the Apostle Paul had a love for the book of Genesis. So much so that when he began his greatest work, which I believe is the book of Romans, he plainly declared that there is in fact a creator in chapter 1. And so we'll look at that passage a little bit later this evening. But before we dig in and begin our study, would you do me the favor of bowing your hearts, your minds, your heads, so that the Lord would speak to us through the power of his word. Father God, we have come again tonight grateful for the majesty and the wonder of your word. We pray that you'd speak to us through it. Uh, We are so grateful, God, that we're not an accident Uh, that we didn't come about by random chance processes over billions of years. Lord, that nothing plus time uh, in your way of thinking is still nothing. And so you being something created all things. 
And that's what we believe the Bible tells us. And we pray now as we begin in the beginning here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. That Lord your presence would be here guiding us, leading us and directing us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, As is true with all books of the Bible, and I think it's really important for us to remember this. Every bit of scripture, though it has a human author actually has a principal author, and that author is actually God. And so Peter would write uh, to the church, as would Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, and, and as they made sure that we understood this, they gave us these two passages that are for us to mark in our minds and in our hearts. They're in Second Peter chapter 1, and it says there in verse 21, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of men. In other words, in times of old, the will of man didn't author the prophetic word of God, or in fact, all of the word of God, because everything that God says is always prophetic. So whether it's a prophetic passage about something that is yet future, or whether it's simply the word itself, all scripture is prophetic. It's important for us to understand that. Because when God speaks forth something, it instantaneously becomes prophetic. That's why I always remind people, when you simply read the Word of God, you are reading something that is prophetic in nature because God said it. It will always be true. It has always been true. It will never not be true. And so when you speak it forth, you're speaking prophetically into someone's life the Word of God. And so Peter knew this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But what he said about the word is this, but holy men of God, in other words, men that God selected, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the principal author of the word. God incarnate in the Spirit. In other words, we have God the Father, Jesus the Son, also God, yet fully man, and the Holy Spirit, fully God, and yet spirit and the power source behind the things that we see in our world. And so the Holy Spirit is the principal author. Paul would write much the same thing there as he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy in 3.16. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, the inspiration behind every word of scripture is not the apostle Paul, it's not Peter, it's not James, it's not John, it was not Moses, It had nothing to do with the compilers of the book of Kings or Chronicles. It wasn't them that wrote these things. It was the spirit of the living God speaking into people's lives. They then authored the word, and the word itself then is is authored not by men, but by God in that sense. And because of that, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, in other words, for correction, if you want to look at it that way, or correction, for instruction in righteousness. So the word of God, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, was authored by the power of the Holy Spirit, but there was always a human author. That human author did several things. That human author could be the, the one who actually received the word and wrote it down. It's believed that Peter wrote his own letters. It's also believed that John wrote his own letters. Paul often used a scribe. He got the message from God, somebody else wrote it down. So as we look at Scripture, we must bear in mind that it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Moses or whether you're talking about the Apostle Paul, 
that ultimately God is the author of all Scripture. We need to get that clear because if you don't begin in the beginning with God, then you have to begin in the beginning with something or someone else. Because not one person in here believes that nothing by itself, because nothing by itself is nothing, had nothing happen to it and something became something. Does that make sense to you? In other words, nothing doing nothing over long periods of time won't become something no matter how much time you give it. So there has to be a cause for everything. The laws of physics clearly dictate that anything that has a cause must have a cause greater than itself. In other words, everything that is has to have something that brought it to be, and that something that brought it to be must be greater than what is brought forth. It's a principle of physics. It's a principle of our world. In other words, nothing can't make itself something. In the beginning, God. And so when you think on these things, you have to start asking yourself some questions. Who wrote the book of Genesis? People debated this for thousands of years. Probably was debated at least as early as as maybe the mid-500s B.C., And so the book of Genesis, really when you look at it, is obviously a compilation. It occurs over a very long period of time. And it could not be that Moses lived at the beginning of it because he wasn't there at the Garden of Eden. Amen? So we know that somebody at least gave him that information. Otherwise, he would have had to have been an awfully old man, like thousands of years old. And he would have had to have survived the flood on top of that and then still been able to live his own life by the time we get to his life. So he was not around and did not see what happened at the Garden of Eden, and yet this book is attributed to him. And so we need to figure out what what happened during that time. I, I believe that Moses is in fact the author, and I will point you to the fact that Jesus also thought the same thing. In Luke 24, he says this, Verses 27 and 44, in the beginning, at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So Jesus believed that in the beginning, Moses expounded about the prophets. He goes on to say in verse 44 of Luke 24, and these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses... So he's attributing the book of Genesis, because that's where that's found, amen? Book of Exodus, the law of Moses, and the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. So assuming that Moses is responsible for this book, which I believe he is, uh, there are only really two other theories, and we'll get to those very, very briefly. But the first one is, there's only three basic Uh, probabilities that how Moses got this and one of them is that he received it by direct revelation from God the same way that most of the rest of the books I believe were authored in other words apostle Paul uh, visited a place called Thessalonica he then went to Corinth and from Corinth God gave him a vision of what to write to the church at Thessalonica and so the church at Thessalonica receives a letter that's from Paul but it's really authored by the Holy Spirit God spoke to him and he wrote it down 
I believe that is highly likely. A second way is that he received it by world tradition. In other words, back in the time uh, of the patriarchs, and if you were to go all the way back to Adam and Eve and to their children, ultimately, into Noah's time, uh, nobody was carrying around smartphones. There were no libraries in the towns. There, there was very few people that had uh, what we would call uh, anything that would be biblical. They weren't all running around with scrolls and it's like, here, I've got my copy of Genesis with me. They didn't have that. So most everything during that time was by oral tradition. People remembered those things. They retold those stories. And it was incumbent upon them to be excruciatingly accurate. Hence the, the use of scribes. The scribes would take, if there was a record of it, there'd be a centralized record, the scribe, and that's thankfully one of the, the great benefits of having found uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we're still finding scrolls in those thousands of caves in the hills of Judea. And so oral tradition would be passed along, someone would compile it, they would write it. Uh, and then a third way to look at it is they actually took written records of the past, maybe not only oral tradition, but they would take things that were actually written down, and then ultimately they would be compiled, guided by the Holy Spirit in each one of these cases. So you have one, a subconscious guiding, where the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to the life of a person. Uh, the second way, it's received by someone retelling the story, which was told initially by the Holy Spirit and recounted under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then a third way that written records were taken, those, those records were also protected and guided by the Holy Spirit, ultimately ending up with the finished product. Now, beautifully, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies of every single book, at least part of them, uh, that we find in the entire Old Testament, except for the book of Ruth. So we know that the Bible that we currently have is excruciatingly accurately translated uh, into the English language from the original text because the scrolls themselves bear witness to that. So we know that there was tremendous accuracy, textual accuracy, uh, from which we have received what we call our Bibles. And while none of these things are 100% accurate, the only real other reasons or, or ways that uh, the book of, of Genesis could have been put together is that there were various writers after Moses that simply would have, uh, they would have been commentators and theologians and all kinds of people. And, and perhaps they, uh, through oral tradition, listened to King Hezekiah or maybe Ezra the scribe. Uh, but a lot of people believe that actually the, the books that we ascribe to Moses were actually uh, authored by Egyptians and Babylonians, perhaps some Assyrians, and Moses just got credit for it. Makes no sense at all because the book of Genesis largely is the history of the people of Israel, and no Egyptian, no Babylonian, no Assyrian is going to want to carry that tradition on. They would have very little uh, to concern themselves with about the history of the Jewish people, and because in essence what the book of Genesis does it is provides a way for us to understand our origins and then takes us through the history of the Jewish people into the time uh, of Joseph and, and then the, the birth of the nation Israel. It makes no sense that the Assyrians would have carried that out or the Babylonians. Nobody would have helped. They would have all wanted the Jewish people to disappear just like everyone else. And the other only thing that, that really makes any sense is perhaps the patriarchs themselves so we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of those guys. Uh, all those men would have kept some type of record 
of the oral history, and they would have carried it around. And, and so Adam would have ended up with part of it, and Noah, and Shem, and Terah, and all of these people. But in essence, at the end, the only way that these records could have possibly gotten to where we have them today is the Holy Spirit simply preserved them. Moses compiled them, put them together, and so we now have the book of beginnings because God had his hand uh, from the very beginning with Adam all the way to we see the, the birth of the nation Israel at the end of the book of Genesis. That whole period of time is extremely important because without it, you absolutely have no foundation for why mankind needs a Savior. Think about it for a second. If there's no Adam, there's no Eve, there's no sin, there's no in the beginning, if that's not how we got here, then I would just tell you we all need to pack up and go home. Because there's no reason for us to be here if there is no sin. If we're just random chance processes carried out over billions of years, ultimately, if we came about because somehow in the middle of a primordial soup, in the middle of nowhere, somehow some electric energy came about and acted on a handful of chemicals producing a single-celled organism, that organism grew over billions of years in the unlimited vacuum of space in, in a temperature near absolute zero, if that produced life, then there's no reason to be here tonight. Because there's no sin, there's no God. So the book of Genesis is excruciatingly important because it provides the backdrop of why the New Testament's even necessary. Because when you end the Old Testament with the book of Malachi, you have a 400-year period of history. That 400-year period of history, which is contained in extra-biblical writings, we do have some record of what went on during that time, During that period of time, it's as though God is kind of taking a little bit of a hiatus from interacting with mankind, though that's not the case. It appears so because it's not really recorded in what we would call the canon of Scripture. And so as we look at the book of Genesis, it provides us with what we call the, the scarlet thread of redemption. In other words, God begins his plan to redeem mankind. Because God's purpose for mankind was always to worship him. The book of Genesis clearly states that. It clearly states that the very worst thing that happened to Adam and Eve is they lost their ability to walk with God in the cool of the day. They literally lost the presence of God in their life. So the only way to get the presence of God back into their life was for them to be reconciled back to God. We get that in the book of Genesis. And so that's the beginning of the story of redemption. How God, in his sovereign, wonderful love for us, acts apart from our will, in essence. We're sinning, and he's saying, I still love you. We're going the wrong way. He says, I want you to come to me anyway. Let me solve your sin problem. If you'll receive this sacrifice, if you'll let me cover you, then we're going to have a right relationship again, and we can fellowship. That begins in the beginning, in the beginning God. If you take God out of the picture in the beginning, then there's no basis for salvation. So the book of Genesis is extremely important in that regard. It provides these, these 66 books that will ultimately become our Bible. 
You're not even going to understand why the New Testament is unless you understand the book of Genesis. These 66 books. Now imagine, I don't know how good you guys are at writing. I kind of do a lot of it. But when I sit down to write, and then I collaborate with someone else, which I have done a lot. I've actually ghostwritten a handful of books. I've helped other people write theirs. I've written chapters for other people. Um, I've acted as an editor for other people's books. I've done all those kinds of things. I can tell you something. Even when you're sitting one office here and an office here to get two human beings to see something from the same perspective and to think the same way about it is almost an impossibility. Now imagine that you have 66 books, at least 40 different authors, and they write over a period of time of almost 3,600 years. How much chance do you think of there being a unified process of authorship if that's the standard and there's no God involved? I would say to you that it's an impossibility. Not just statistically, but logistically. You're not even going to get the records to to come together all in one place. And yet God does that. But he begins that whole thing by handing this wonderful story that is the book of Genesis to us. And it, it provides a backdrop for how we got here. Why, why in, in this day and time, as we sit here in the year 2017, we're near midway through the year, why every single person, as I said this morning, must make the decision for themselves to either accept or reject Jesus Christ. The basis for that decision is found in the beginning. That's where it comes from. Adam and Eve were forced to make the same decision. They could accept the sacrifice that God made for them in sacrificing an animal. They were covered with that bloody coat. Or they could reject that and wander around in their nakedness. So redemption itself starts in the book of Genesis. If you believe that you got here by accident, then you have to ask yourself the question, why am I here? If you believe that you were created by an omniscient, omnipresent, wonderfully loving and caring God who created you for a purpose, and that purpose is fellowship and worship for us to love God because he loves us. If you believe that, then human life actually has purpose and meaning. The whole universe then has purpose and meaning. If you don't start there, then absolutely everything in the entire universe is completely meaningless. It's just your opinion about it, or my opinion about it, or our collective opinion about it. But there is no one behind the scenes to whom we will answer, and thereby, really, you can do anything you want. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's nothing to worry about. You're going to get X number of years, and then you're going to be done, so you better grab all that you can get. 
so you can see the types of lives. There's only two of them that people live. One is, I believe I have purpose and meaning, and God's given me that purpose and meaning because in the beginning, God, or there is no purpose and meaning, and everything is about what I can snatch out of this world, and thereby futility. So one has purpose, the other is 100% completely futile. And you talk to people that don't know the Lord. Talk to an atheist sometime. Talk to someone who doesn't believe that God exists. And you're going to find somebody who will also normally admit to you, I really don't know why, I, why I'm even here. My life is just an endless string of circumstances. Some of them good, some of them bad, but there's no grand plan to it. And when it's all said and done, I'm just going to be dirt. Book of Genesis says there's something far more wonderful in mind from God's perspective about us. I want to share with you, if you would, turn for a moment, Romans chapter 1. And this is Paul's take, really, on the book of Genesis. He does it in a handful of verses. We looked at it almost a year ago when we began our study in the book of Romans. But he says this, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So he makes a very clear statement. The wrath of God is actually going to eventually come upon anyone who lives their life in unrighteousness. Now, in order for that to be true, there has to be righteousness and unrighteousness because it's making a distinction there. And he goes on. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And so you're naturally kind of scratching your head. Well, how's God shown his self, his righteousness or unrighteousness to the human being, to the average person? It comes from the book of Genesis. And here's what he says about it. For since the creation of the world, you see the apostle Paul was a creationist. He believed that in the beginning, God, that there is a creator Probably not one person in here believes that if you go down to LAX and you sit, you know, in one of the departure lounges and you look out on the tarmac, that any of those jets, I don't care how many billions of years you would give them, not one of those jets would appear by themselves if you just give material, in other words, matter, some time, maybe a little bit of outside energy from the sun, that those things would organize themselves into all the parts of a jet and then come together on the tarmac and all of a sudden there you have an A330 Airbus or you have a 777 a Boeing. Not one person in here believes that. And yet if you don't start with a creator in the beginning God, you are forced to believe exactly that but infinitely more complex than any jet that you've ever seen and that's just bacteria yes a bacterium 
has more moving parts, more very specific parts, specifically chemical parts, than any aircraft that's flying in the skies today. That's a fact. That's not a guess. And yet, you don't believe that jets happen by random chance processes. But people believe that life can. So Paul addresses this because he's basically taking a shot at the two worldviews. One is secular humanism and what we would call Darwinistic uh, evolution. In other words, random chance processes, billions of years, mutation, all of those things, natural selection, everything working together on something somewhere at some point in time creating everything that we see. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what he believed. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes... Now, now Paul wasn't a microbiologist, and we'll dig into, into the hows and whys of all this when we get to the individual chapters where we'll highlight these things. But Paul wasn't a microbiologist. He wasn't sitting in a lab. He had no scanning electron microscopes. He wasn't looking at the universe through the Hubble telescope. Uh, Paul was sitting someplace in a prison cell, and, and he writes these things. In a world in which most of the sciences were in their infantile state, certainly nowhere near as advanced as they are today. And yet he writes, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. He knew, because God told him so, that the material world is made out of things that we cannot see. We, we can't see to the molecular level. We can't see to the atomic level. We certainly can't see to the subatomic level that the world is made out of invisible parts. And so he says this, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is you could simply look at the complexity of the universe as we know it, the things that were made by God, and it should cause you to go, there's a God. It's not a complex process. You're supposed to look at what you have before you, what you could hold in your hand. You could go out and look at a tree. You could stare at the sunset. You could look at the fact that somehow God manages to cool down the entire planet by making it day for part of the time and night for part of the time. And oh, by the way, he tilted it at just a, the, the right access, uh, access to, to where uh, we don't have it too hot in one spot and too cold in another, yet we do have ice caps that store most of the world's fresh water that eventually does evaporate, that does go back into the hydrosphere, the, the water that's contained in the, in the air. You see, Paul's saying, basically, if you just look at the world around you, you'd understand that something's keeping all this together because it makes no sense that it happens by chance. In the beginning, God. He, he's making a declaration to us. He's saying, look, if you just look at the world You'll see there has to be a God. And then he goes on, if you missed it, he says this. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. And they became futile in their thoughts. You realize up until about 150 years ago, there was almost zero scientists that did not believe that at least there was some form of a theistic entity, we would call him God, but nobody believed in random chance processes over billions of years. 
They just took for granted that the book of Genesis was correct. In the beginning, God. That's where they started. And yet people today don't start in the beginning, God. They start in the beginning, there was a singularity. That singularity exploded some 13.7 billion years ago. And from all of that chaos came massive amounts of order and diversity. They became futile in their thoughts. And the foolish hearts that they had were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them over to the uncleanness of their heart. Basically, he's saying when mankind got so smart that we factored God out of the equation through Darwinistic evolution, because that's the highest form of that thinking, that we got here from nothing, and nothing acted on something, and somehow it became something. The Big Bang happened. I actually believe in the Big Bang. God said bang, and it happened. (laughs) I believe in the beginning, God. And I hope to prove to you over the next several weeks that it's a very reasonable way of thinking that aligns itself with almost every area of science. And while it does not prove everything, the evolutionists cannot prove everything either. Matter of fact, they can prove nothing. They can give you a lot of thoughts, and very well reasoned, by the way. I want to make people that are, that are engaged in that area of, of thought out to be fools, because they're not. They're very, very wise people. They're very smart people, but they have become fools, exactly as Paul said. Because they factored God out of the equation. And ultimately, they have worked themselves right into a corner that they cannot get out of. One of the reasons that Darwinian thought itself is being abandoned today. You see, what happens is when you leave God in the beginning, you have the right place that you're starting from. A few creationists uh, that you might know. Now, I realize I put these up here small. You can get these on the website. You can, you can go there and download the slide. But I just want to highlight a few of these. Because these are people that were very brilliant scientists. A lot of these are fairly old. But they're known because they are the founders of these disciplines of science. In other words, if, if you were to study physics... You have Leonardo da Vinci to thank for that. He believed in God. If you've ever used the scientific method, in other words, you find something, you put forth a hypothesis, you begin to test that hypothesis, you run experiments on that, you then repeat them and verify them, and it gets tested over and over again. If you've ever used that, Francis Bacon, who was a Christian, discovered that particular scientific method. Uh, if you've ever looked through a telescope, if you've ever had a love for astronomy, if you've ever looked at the night sky and go, you know, I'd really like to someday be able to go to the Keck telescopes on, on Mauna Kea in the big island of Hawaii, and I'd love to be able to gaze out into the universe, uh, y- you would have Copernicus and Johann Kepler and Galileo Galilei to thank for that. They're the founders of astronomy. Believers. Robert Boyle in chemistry. John Ray, natural history. Isaac Newton, calculus. Laws of gravity. John Dalton, atomic theory. These these are not ignorant people. 
These are the founders of these disciplines of science, and yet every last one of them believed that there was a God. They may have not been specifically a Christian, but they believed that God existed, and he was the only reasonable explanation for the universe as we know it. Even things that we look at and go, well, that's kind of, you know, an evolutionary science. Ecology, William Durham. Now, he actually was a Christian. Louis Agis, glaciology. And yet so many people say, well, glaciers prove that the world is billions of years old. No, they don't. Because nobody was there. And nobody was certainly there during the flood when the entire world was destroyed. And we'll look at that. So in thinking about those things, don't sell yourself short by just simply saying because someone has a whole lot of acronyms after their name and it usually ends up with a PhD in something, that that means that they know everything because nobody knows everything. The question becomes what's reasonable. In the beginning, God is reasonable. It is a good place to start. And when you begin there, you can look at everything else correctly and accurately. But if you don't begin there, then you've got a whole bunch of holes in virtually every area of science. As we look ahead, and I want to do this, you, you, you may not think about these things, but I want to give you a little idea of the things that are addressed in, in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. The origin of the universe. The United States government spends currently a little over $20 billion a year on, on the study of the origin of the universe. I can save them that money. In the beginning, God. Now, I have to love the fact that we're taking pictures of, you know, gigantic nebulas that are trillions of miles long and trillions of miles wide. I think it's a wonderful thing. I have no problem with that. But I can tell you this, on the other side of that, you're going to find another one. And on the other side of that, you're going to find another one. Until you reach the edge of what we believe is the known galaxy. And then you're going to still be stuck with the same question that you started with. How did we get here? Because it is believed now by astronomers that there is an edge to the universe. And in fact, the universe itself is now collapsing. It was expanding forever, and now... It's coming back the other way. We'll look at all those things. So the, the origin of the universe, we find in the book of Genesis. The origin of information, order, complexity. You ever looked at a, you ever watched a hummingbird hover over a flower? Beating its wings over 2,000 times a second? Try and figure that one out, how those bones and sinews move that fast. That it actually creates lift in both strokes, both up and down. We still can't do that. We have no way of replicating what a hummingbird does every day. Very complex, extremely ordered. Systems that even though we already have them, we can't replicate them. We find order and complexity in the book of Genesis. The origin of our solar system. Book of Genesis. The atmosphere, the hydrosphere. You ought to be really thankful for both of those things. Because without that balance of oxygen and nitrogen, a little bit of hydrogen in there, 
Uh, that gaseous mis- mix- mixture that you've been taking into your lungs since you sat down? Matter of fact, all day, and you've been doing it without thinking about it? You ever ask yourself the question, how long did a person exist before they figured out that they needed to breathe involuntarily? You think the lungs just stored that information automatically, that like the lung floated around in space, and it's like, okay, well, now I'm a lung. I'm going to hang here for a while. And yet you sit there and breathe all day long exactly the right mixture of oxygen and nitrogen. And oh, by the way, only planet in the known universe that we have found thus far, we'll leave science where it belongs, that has this atmosphere suitable for life. Just exactly the right amount of gravity for the trigger pressure that's necessary for your body to not explode or be crushed. Pretty neat solar system we have. Spinning around here in this third planet from the sun. Just the right amount of heat. You recognize if your body exceeds 106 degrees that you will die. Hottest places on earth generally aren't quite that hot. Though you freeze to death if it gets too much colder in about 32 degrees or so, fairly quickly. Average temperature of the planet, 68.9 degrees. Pretty much what we'd call perfect. All the water that floats around in the atmosphere. You know, here in L.A., we're blessed. We, we have a little bit of, you know, you, you move towards Palm Springs, it's a dry heat. But aren't you glad the whole world isn't like Palm Springs? Because we'd all shrivel up and die. There's rain one place, it's dry another. You ever wonder why the oceans don't creep up? You ever thought about the amount of water that flows out of the Mississippi River and the Nile River, the Ganges River? All the world's rivers, they don't stop flowing at night. Did you know that? They they keep going to the ocean all day, every day. And yet the oceans don't rise. Because there is a perfect amount of evaporation that occurs every single cycle hydrologically. That water vapor goes up into the sky, it comes down and falls as rain. It's perfectly cyclical. So much so that the water levels in the seas change very, very, very infrequently in any amount that matters. The origin of life itself. Imagine uh, the answers you have to come up with to explain who we are, how all this stored information in our DNA, and we'll get into some of these things. I don't want to bore you too much with details. But when you think about the origin of life, how did we get here? From the book of Genesis, we'll find out. The origin of man, us. Not just all life, which that's in there, but us very specifically as completely unique to the entire animal kingdom. There is no other animal on the planet or in the known universe, so far as we know, that's like us. That can do the things that we do, that thinks the way we think, that communicates with language the way we do, those things are all unique to mankind. 
we find out how in the book of Genesis. We also find the origin of marriage. And by the way, it was not a government that created that. That was God. Book of Genesis. The smallest, tiniest unit of human society. Designed by God to be a monogamous relationship. Patriarchal culture. There's a headship that's involved in it. All comes from the book of Genesis. A real question. One that people still ask. Why is there evil in the world? Book of Genesis answers that. Origin of language. If we all came from common answers, you ever thought about the evolutionary explanation for this? We used to all be monkeys. Speaking monkey, whatever that is. If that's actually true, then why did we develop all these languages? We should all speak exactly the same language or something close to it, and yet we don't. Book of Genesis explains that. How about government? Ever thought how we ended up with government? Why does humankind gravitate towards central leadership? Book of Genesis. How about culture? We would call it ethnos. Races, creeds, cultures, things that are unique to specific people groups. Comes from the book of Genesis. How about nations? Taking those cultures and then applying them to a very specific group of people in a geographic location. Book of Genesis. How about man's religious nature? Man is innately religious. Did you know that? Almost without exception, man is innately religious. Atheists and agnostics make up less than 3% of the entire world's population. Those are people who either don't believe because they believe it's unintelligent, that's an agnostic, an atheist is someone who simply refuses to believe that there is a God or someone that's bigger than us. Book of Genesis explains our religious nature. And then finally, the origin of, of God's chosen people, Israel. All these things and a whole lot more we'll look at as we study this book. Most importantly for me, and this is me personally, because all that stuff is going to be very interesting. It's a, it's a study in all kinds of things that probably many of you have questions about. I know I certainly did and still do to some degree. But I think there's some reasonable answers that the book of Genesis provides for us. But for me, more than anything else, it truly is the scarlet thread of redemption. The foundation of why God created us in the first place, that he made us for fellowship. He always wanted us to be relational with him. You know, it, the, the very foundation of who we are as humankind is established in the book of Genesis in such a way that you can actually see that God loves us. So when you get to the Gospel of John, which would make no sense whatsoever, if the Gospel of John just appeared without understanding Genesis, you would have no reason for why it's even there. For God so loved the world, that would make no sense unless you know that in the beginning, God loved Adam and Eve. 
He didn't make them automatons. He didn't make them little robots. He didn't make them subservient. He did not make them so that they could just, you know, yes, O Lord, we will do thou bidding, you know. He didn't put them someplace and say, okay, be fruitful and multiply and get busy. He made them for relationship and fellowship and love and worship. He hung out with them. It was not random chance processes. It wasn't all just simple accidentalism working over long periods of time. God created us for a purpose. When you look at the book of Genesis, you're going to find that there's 165 passages that are either directly or indirectly clearly referenced in the New Testament. And on six occasions, those are going to come from Jesus. So Jesus believed that the book of Genesis was extremely important to our understanding of God's plan. That we are, in fact, his creation, exactly as the Apostle Paul puts it forth in Romans 1. That you're not an accident. No matter what people have told you, no matter what you might believe because you went to college and you, as I did, took a a class or two, evolution, heredity, and society, nearly ruined me. I walked away from the Lord for a period of time, largely because of that one class. I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, if I'm an accident, I'm an accident. It's kind of what I believed all along anyway. seemed to be where my life was headed. Then I realized, no, God had created me fearfully and wonderfully. That I was made in his image. That I have dignity, honor, value. Those things all come from the book of Genesis. Mankind being established by God as as the crowning achievement of creation. Did you ever think of yourself as a crowning achievement of God's creative ability? Because that's the way he sees you. That's why bringing children into this world is so precious. We get in a very strange way to mimic a little bit of the creative aspect of God's character and nature. He's actually brought us into that a little bit. All this wonderful diversity. All the beautiful uniqueness, the incredible structure of your human DNA. No two people. That's the reason if you ever have DNA evidence against you in a court and your DNA matches the DNA, you're guilty. Period. Because there's only one you. And your DNA proves it. And everybody's is different. And yet God loves us uniquely, wonderfully, beautifully. And I've always found it interesting that there are people who claim to believe the gospel, but they do not believe in the book of Genesis. Well, that's just a story. It's just kind of pseudo-scientific there in the first couple of chapters. It's not intended to be scientific. It's intended to be a guide through which you look at your world and say which is the more reasonable response to the information that we have before us. It's a guide. 
It helps you look at things correctly. Most of you, if you've ever been in, in any type of a debate, one of the things that you always want to do is provide the shortest distance between the two points in the argument. Because the, the, the more diverse the conversation gets, the more chance there is for error. And so God keeps it very simple in the book of Genesis. And it's a straight line. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God created the periodic table of elements and the basic laws of physics and the laws of thermodynamics. I know, by the way, he had a star to coalesce someplace in the outer reaches of the galaxy. It doesn't say that. Because then you're going to have people wondering, well, how did he do that? So he simply says, look, I just did it. It provides a place for for us to begin our thinking process. And so as we continue our study, I pray it will be interesting. I pray it will be fun. I pray it will be informative. But most importantly, I pray that it will honor the Lord, that our thought processes will be such that we won't be pushed around. You know, the body of Christ for too long has just said, well, you know, we, we believe in a creator, and it's almost like we're embarrassed by it. You can be very proud of the fact that you believe that there is a creator God. Because that creator God explains a lot of things that the world still has no answers for. And as you say, I believe that in the beginning God, you actually have an answer that the world still doesn't have an answer for. Because the world's still looking for the reasoning behind the universe even existing in the first place. And they don't have any answers for that. As believers, we have answers for that. There is a God who's bigger than his creation. He is the uncaused cause of everything else. And we'll look at him next week. Amen? Let's stand. We'll pray together. We're going to bring the worship team back out for at least one song. Some pastors forward for prayer. Pray that you're encouraged. Pray that you look at your, your existence here on this earth from God's perspective, that you were created in his image for a purpose. That those purposes that he has for you are good. And he loves you. You're not uh, a random series of, of chance processes that happen to end up in the, in the place called your life. From God's perspective, everything about you, he has known. Matter of fact, Paul goes on so, so far as to say it this way. He said, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works that you should walk in them. That's a God who loves you and a God who wants to use you and wants to bless you. Wants you to know who he is so that you can worship him and have fellowship with him. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. And we pray, Lord, that you would work by the power of your spirit to give us understanding. Lord, into the deeper things of who you are. Lord, not so that our minds can be inflated, but so that our faith can grow. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you've given us enough information that it helps us analyze the world that we live in. Lord, we don't have to be 
like those unbelievers that the Apostle Paul describes there in Romans chapter 1, upon whom your wrath is going to one day come. Because we do not worship the creation, we worship the Creator, you. And we do so willingly and gratefully. We thank you that you've given us so many answers to to life's questions. But you've also left enough things a mystery so we don't just simply trust in information. And God, we're thankful for that. There is always going to be an element of faith in following you. Lord, your word to us, written through the writer of the book of Hebrews, is without faith. It is impossible to please you. And so we want to express that faith by believing. And that that belief would be reasonable. Lord, we pray that you would help uh, those things which we know to line up with those things which we uh, have from you by faith. And so, God, we thank you for your love for us, your plans for us, which are good. Pray that you'd bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.